The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. Welcome to the Savage Actual Podcast. I'm here with my good looking host, Mr. Patrick. Patrick. That's right. <laughs> and we have a special guest. We'll let him say his own name. What's up, man? Not too much. Uh, I'm Ryan O'Leary. Just seeing what's up. (laughs) Yeah, Mr. Uh, Ryan O'Leary came across our radar not too long ago, and uh, he is from my neck of the woods. I'm from the Midwest as well, from Kansas. He's from Iowa. I've got relatives in the Cedar Rapids, Des Moines area, and he uh, ended up joining the the Natty Guard and did some time with them for a while, and uh, on over to the Louisiana National Guard, and then got a wild hair to live an adventurous life and uh do a really cool thing man in my opinion to uh fight against isis supporting the kurds which whom i fell in love with when i served in kurdistan for a few years and uh now he is currently in ukraine fighting against russia so we have a pretty unique guest here and we can't wait to hear your story and get your story out from our perspective man so welcome welcome to the channel yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Uh, I haven't done a podcast before, so this will be interesting. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. shit. You're on the best one, man. <laughs> don't don't censor yourself. No need to do anything different, man. Just be you. Jason and I are, well, man, we're just going to bro out and talk and have a good time, man. Learn about what you're doing. And uh, you got an interesting story. And we're, we're super glad that we could uh, take some time to talk to you. Perfect. Yeah, I'm glad there's no censorship. You'd have to pay somebody a lot of money because I cuss all the time. So <laughs> well, you're you're a good company, my friend. I mean the the combat combat arms MOS. I mean between the three of us, we got a fucking a few books worth of stories to tell. I'm sure. So uh, yeah, man. I guess we'll kind of do it like we usually do. You know, we uh, we go back in time, man. So you know, you you grew up in the in the, in the Iowa area and is it Des Moines or Cedar Rapids? I can't remember. Yeah. I grew up in the, the Northwest, uh, part of Iowa, like rural families, uh, like farming communities, small towns, you know, like less than 10,000 people. So, um, <clears throat> grew up, I guess redneck, whatever you want to call it. Um, not really, but I mean, it is what it is. But, um, yeah, I grew up there, just small community. Uh, a lot of my relatives served in the military. So that's, you know, what I did after high school. And uh, I don't know, it was a good experience for <clears throat> a lot of it. Growing up was good. You know, I mean, small town living is the best. Like, big cities are cool, but, like, at the end of the day, if you want, like, families and, like, a part, be a part of your community, you just get a lot more of it in the smaller communities, I think. So, Agreed. I like, I like yeah, my childhood. Absolutely. It was great. What, uh, what year did you graduate, man? So I graduated in 2005. I did the early entry into the guard. So I actually signed in two, November of 2004, and then I graduated in May of 2005 from high school. So nice. Were you uh, you Bangor. were an 11 Bravo? 
Yep. Oh yeah. Fort Benning all the way, Sand Hill. Foxtrot two five eight. I don't think I'll, I don't, does anyone ever forget what their basic training unit was? I don't think they did. I did. No. I did actually. Really? You <laughs> yeah, remember you, my you, platoon number was thirty one twenty six, and I just broke out my fucking uh, yearbook, the Marine yearbook for you know boot camp, and I remembered like Lima. It doesn't really matter, dude. But yeah, I forgot. But I remembered the fucking. It's seared in my brain what the platoon number is for sure. Oh, for sure. Like, but that's like third battalion. I was twenty one oh five, second battalion, freaking Paris Island. Like, you, a hundred percent, man. It's just such a, such a distinctive time in uh, somebody's life you know you can't forget that stuff i i think i know the answer to this man but i want to hear if you agree with it um you know in 04 i was in my second deployment to iraq in fallujah so did did that time and space in american you know newsreels and your buddies and probably older guys in high school going over to join and to fight did that have a play in, in your reason to join not really. So I was looking at joining probably since I was at least a freshman. So, uh, you know, my grandfather on my dad's side was uh, in the Navy um, during like World War II at the end of it and then uh, a little bit into Korea. Um, he always basically said he played golf with POWs. He was in the Great Lakes area during the war and whatnot. Nobody, I don't know what he actually did. He never really went into it. And then, you know, I had some uncles that served in the Navy, and then my grandfather on my mother's side also served for like 30 years in the Naval Reserve out of um, Nebraska and stuff. So it was just something I always wanted to do. I always believed like the military, like we live in a free country due to our military. So I thought it was, you know, it was something that I felt that I had to do no matter what. So um, I think... I think it's good for people to serve. I don't know if I'd ever say, like, I regret being infantry. I think it was a good life lesson. But the career fields are a lot lower <laughs> outside of the military. For sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting careers you can do in the military. But, like, I don't regret joining. Um, I think I would have went active if I had to do it a second time around uh, and, uh, you know, like, three years active duty and then, you know, like, green to gold or something. But uh, I don't regret joining. The Iowa Guard's actually pretty good, too. They take care of their soldiers. We always had the Gucci gear. Like, I mean, Afghanistan, we showed up rocking multi-cams in 2010 with ACOG M4s and the, what is it, MK46s or whatever, the Mini 249s. Yep. So. Well, that's awesome. That's, you know, that's super awesome. important, man. That having, having the latest and greatest gear makes, <laughs> makes things a little bit better, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with super old shit. That sucks. So good on. Yeah, good on it was, it was awesome. Yeah, they spend a lot of money on their equipment and stuff, so it's good. They they treat their soldiers well. At least they did when I was in. I don't know, you know, the good. last ten years, but. So what made you do that transition? You you were in the did you deployed too while you were in the Iowa Guard? Correct. You went to Iraq. Yeah, so I went I went to Iraq. I was seven oh eight, and then uh, two thousand ten to eleven. I was in Afghanistan. I was in uh, RC East. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2010 to 11 so and then the reason i went down to louisiana is i actually got married so <laughs> so talk about those deployments a little bit what i would have to assume that your time in iraq kind of put that drive into you a little bit to uh come back and do some of the things that you're doing now is, am i correct in that assumption 
No, actually, no? to be honest, Iraq was a shitty deployment for me. Um, probably like six months in, I had some PTSD issues. I ended up going back stateside um, and just actually like fell down a fucking rabbit hole for quite a while, to be honest. Um, probably up to like 2009, uh, probably like early 2000, uh, mid 2009. Uh, and then basically, actually... My commander from my unit basically pulled me aside uh, one drill weekend and was like, "Hey, you know, you're being a you're being a fuck up, basically." He's like, "I want you to go on this next deployment, but you got to unfuck yourself." And I was like, "All right, you know, uh, time to quit being a fucking drunk and everything else." Shaped myself up, uh, and like six months later, I was on the deployment list for 2010 to 11. So the Afghanistan deployment was, I think, uh, more of a <clears throat> I'd say beneficial deployment because like. Iraq, you know, we didn't really see what we were like. We'd go out and fucking deal with the Iraq army shooting at the Iraqi police, shooting at civilians, shooting at each other. Like, Iraq was a fucking shithole in 2007, 2008. Um, and I don't know. I just, I wasn't a very big fan of Iraq. Uh, I am now uh, that I got to go back when I wasn't with the U.S. military. And you can actually see the changes that, you know, the locals had. Because, like, I worked with Sunnis, um, the Kurds, and some of the Shia, too. So, I mean... But, like, at the time, I was just, what, 19, 18? Let's see, 2007. I've been, like, 19. Um, yeah, Iraq for me was not a good deployment. But I mean, that's that's pretty young to be jumping into something like that too, man, to be 18, 19 yep. in a war zone and not potentially not getting sort of the direction and, the you know, the really the awareness of the situation and what's going on. And I'm sure it was total fucking chaos, you know, for being 18 in that situation. Yeah, and, like, I mean, like, honestly, like, Iraq, you never knew what the fuck your mission was. Like, yep. I mean, it was, yeah, we're here to fight terrorism. It was, like, who's the fucking terrorist? Is it the Iraq army who went in and shot at a fucking the village? Or is it the Iraqi police who shot at the Iraq army who then sparked a fucking sectarian thing? Like, Iraq was just, everything was gray. You'd go ask your command what the fuck's going on. They wouldn't have a clue. Like, I mean... Wow. Iraq, Iraq during the troop surge was just a clusterfuck, to be honest, at least for from my point of view, because like we we're at the tail end of that. So, yeah, I've heard that absolutely. You know, like Patrick said, he nailed it. You know, I look back at when I deployed to Iraq the first time I was twenty three. I, I can't imagine my mindset at eighteen. You know, strategic level, a young and enli dirty enlisted guy. You know, E one to E four for the most part, and you're so disconnected from the higher level of decision-making, you don't even hear it. You don't even hear the whispers and the thought process of a decision being made. You're so disconnected. So I could totally feel it. Yeah, and like a lot of it too is, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, did, I just don't feel like there was, like looking back on it, I think it was more of a frustration type deal. And then and just nobody having a clue what the fuck was going on. Like it'd be like, oh, go on tower guard. And it's like, well, you know, your 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 uh, ROE for the tower guard is this, this, and this. And then, like, fucking, you know, it's, it's just a fucking... Iraq was just a clusterfuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the best so way you I got, got it you, right later on. But. So you got back from that deployment. You said, uh, how long was it? It was a couple years later that you went to Afghanistan? Yeah, so I went to Afghanistan uh, about two years, roughly two years after okay. I got back from Iraq, 2010 to 11. Uh, I was in Paktia over off of, uh, so I actually deployed in 2010 with a PSD unit uh, for the 168th, one of the 168. Um, <clears throat> we ended up not doing, P so we actually flew into Afghanistan and like 
the day we got to our fob, we went out on a mission, uh, got in a fucking massive firefight, which was awesome. And then after that, our brigade commander basically was like, well, I'm going to fly to these places. So he mainly, you know, started doing more of the aerial, like taking a helicopter to the, to the smaller AFCOPs and stuff. So we actually transitioned from being like PSD to like route clearance, EOD, uh, just general fuckery, well, I guess you could call it. Um, <clears throat> Which was, I mean, it was cool, though, because, like, since we were PSD, we didn't have any, we had our brigade commander as our main officer, and then we were under HHC, but no officers would go out in the field with us. Our highest ranking out in the field was a fucking staff sergeant. Wow. So, it was, it was, like, we, they would rotate lieutenants through, so, like, there was some injuries and stuff, and uh, so, like, officers would get rotated in and out. So, we'd have, like, an officer, like, a lieutenant, like, a first lieutenant for maybe, like, three weeks, and then they'd send him to one of the infantry units. And, like, the whole time we're doing, like, uh, we're going from, like, Fob Gardez, Fob Lightning, up to, like, Don Patan at the Pakistan border, or down to, like, uh, Ronankel, uh, Zormont. And so, like, it was just, we had a lot more freedom, I guess. Because, uh, like I said, our highest ranking on the ops was typically a staff sergeant, or uh, our E7, like, Sergeant First Class guy basically sat at the talk and would, ran, like, man the radios for us. So, like, our con ops and everything were planned by, like, myself and some of the NCOs. Like, I would go into the talk, and we'd try to figure out the air support situation and shit. It was, it was interesting. It was more hands-on. Um, so, it was, you know, we had, a, we had an actual mission. Like, if there was a black route, we'd usually try to drive down it to clear it. So, <laughs> I like it. So, how, how, long, how long was that deployment total? Uh, total, it was 12 months. Okay. And then, wow. you know, your 30 days after that we took, so it was like 13 months total after you get like a, you know, your month vacation if you didn't take leave. So, yep. Damn. So you get back from that wild deployment. I mean, it sounds like Afghanistan for sure. It sounds like you, uh, you had some, uh, I don't know, like having just the dirty enlisted dudes, you know, not very high ranks directly under the your your main guy such a high rank sound like you had some freedom in a lot of ways you know yeah like i I think a lot of people were jealous of us that deployment because like i mean like if we wanted to go do a mission even if we didn't have like if if the command from like hhc or brigade didn't have a mission for us we could just literally submit one and like we'd go do it like be like all right you know tomorrow let's just go fuck off to the you know afghan pack border go see what's up with alpha company or go down to Charlie Company in Zormont, and then we'd go. Or we'd just link up with the Afghan police and go run ops with them. So, I mean, it was we had a lot more freedom. Uh, like, we weren't micromanaged as much, so it let us. And because of that, because we didn't really have an officer all the time, it let the lower enlisted actually learn what was going on. So it was just a, a little bit better deployment. I mean, like, everyone knew what was happening. So we got in a lot of fights, too. Like, we got shot at quite a bit. Yeah. We actually took our... Uh, so I ended up running, like, the lead vehicle. Um, I think it was, what, Guardian 1? It was basically a Cougar uh, MRAP, and we had a mine roller on it. We actually uh, found out that the U.S. Army at the time had light kits you could order. So we ordered, like, six of these fucking light kits and mounted them all on the front vehicle. So we'd do night ops, and basically what we'd do is we'd flip these fucking light kits all on, and we could you could see us from, like, fucking 15 miles away. It was ridiculous. But, I mean, it was hilarious because, like, they just shoot all at you, and then fucking, you know, the back three trucks would just unload on them when they'd shoot at you. So it worked out great. Huh. I, mean, I had a blast. Like, it was just, it was like, 
like we had our restraints, obviously, like we had our ROEs and uh, all that that we'd follow. So, but like at the end of the day, it was like you know, it, like they mortared like the Afghan police one day. I was like, okay, let's go fuck these guys up. So we drove into the village that the fucking where we thought they would be at, and you know, you set up a hasty TCP and you just sit there and search vehicles. Well. You know, like we found, you know, RPGs in the back of a vehicle, so we had to call the Afghans and all that. And then, like, it was just there's way more freedom. Wow, yeah, that's that's fucking crazy. It was fun. I'm gonna start calling you Bait, man. That's that's my new nickname. For you. <laughs> I mean, so if you actually ever talk to any of my guys, especially the PSC ones, we we got called out to um, what's the name of that fucking village? It was a village between. Uh, Bob Gardez and uh, Don Patan, up where our Alpha Company guys were, we got called out to go find an IED that somebody had called in that, like, oh, we found an IED. We spent, like, two and a half hours walking through those shit fucking canals that they all have. Uh, yep. And, like, we finally got tired of it, so actually, I ended up crawling through the fucking culverts, and we found it, and I just yanked it out of the fucking culvert. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> so, Christ, I mean, man. It happens. It was a good deployment. Like, I had a blast. I mean, it was... It was chaos, but it was controlled. I don't know if bait would be good. Maybe lucky would be a better fucking nickname. Holy shit. Or lightning, riding the fucking lightning, man. <laughs> Another time we walked into a minefield. That was pretty interesting. Also with EOD. Like they're like, Yeah, you guys are in a minefield. I was like, Well now we're fucked. Christ. What would you what would you say to kind of wrap wrap up your, your military career? What would you say was the the gnarliest tick that you got into? It was the craziest, you know, firefight threat you when were, i was you were in the u.s military in general yeah that's i was like you wrap up your military career he's still running and doing it oh no no i mean this is what you're doing now it's way gnarlier dude obviously no just in your, 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 your army deployments, yeah. national guard yeah the guard one i would say like the first day we got into uh guard as that first stop because like dude we were all green as fuck like i mean even the guys deployed it was like a good hour and a half two hours of the firefighting and our front vehicle got hit with an rpg our back vehicle got hit like we got fucking smashed nobody got killed nobody got injured but like they destroyed like everything we had and like the first fucking firefight they shot the crow turret fucking they <laughs> fucked everything up Damn. <laughs> like the, the taliban guys up there could fucking fight like the haqqani guys it was such like every ambush we got it like every time we'd hit an ied it'd be like in the just poor fire from every fucking mountain I've read a lot about the Haqqani network, man, and that family and the, the money it's tied to and off limits in yeah. Pakistan, you know, but they come over yep. to the border and do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah. I mean, the Haqqani network has direct ties to the Pakistani ISI. They're the guys that held fucking Bergdahl for that yes, extended yes they were. period of time. Yeah. Those guys are, they are the real deal and all their fighters have been doing it for <laughs> as long as they've been alive, basically. You know, yeah, and I, you know, they'll still do that. I mean, now that they run the country or whatever, I'm, they're still going to be terrorists. Well, now, now no they're just like fighting fucking ISIS. So these guys, like, they, you know, they're just like, well, we're not, nobody's invading us right now. Let's uh, turn in and fucking fight each other. So, like, whatever, have at it, man. Places a fucking shit. Yeah, let them kill each other. So you you bounced from Iowa National Guard, and you said you ended up in Louisiana, huh? Yeah, I ended up in the, fuck, what number was it? The two, I can't remember. It was the Black Sheep Brigade out of uh, Baton Rouge. I was down there, actually met my wife before I deployed. 
and then we got married. It was uh, it was a spur of the moment thing. Got married he's on like, my like two. He's like, I went to went to Mardi Gras and came home with a wife. Yeah, basically. I mean, it was sort of. Yeah, close to it. But I'm not, I'm not married anymore. I'm like divorced. But um, welcome to the club. I was down there from yeah. Yeah, we've all got one of those. Like two, 2010 to like 2014, I was down there. I got divorced uh, mid 2014, so she's doing good. She has, I think, she has a kid now and like real estate development or something. But man, I haven't talked to her in probably like five years. How was your experience with uh, Louisiana, man? How long did that last? Um, Louisiana was good. I mean, I drank a lot, but it was, <laughs> yeah, it was it's Louisiana. But no, Louisiana was good. Honestly, like. So coming from the Midwest, we have like a tight knit community. So like I know I said like small town communities are always better, but like Louisiana, like so I lived in New Orleans and like New Orleans, like each block is its own community. So you have like Treme, you have Ninth Ward, you have uh, fuck I'm trying to remember what the other ones like the Garden District. Like each little section of like New Orleans is like its own little little community. It was pretty cool because like. We lived in Treme, which was like a somewhat of a shithole at that time. Uh, it was cheap living though. Like, I mean, there was shootings and stuff, but like, the shootings were always typically if you were fucking dealing drugs or involved in that shit. And we were never involved with it, so we never got fucked with. Um, but like, we'd hang out with like the gang members. Like, I mean, this they'd have like street parties and stuff. So, um, but like, it was cool. Like, I like New Orleans. The culture, like, Southern culture is insane, especially when you get down to like um you know into like the cajun or the creole areas um like like you know the kunas is whatever you want to call them because like you know you go across the river into like covington and further up or even down in the bayous like it was cool it was like a different experience i'd never been in outside of iowa since like before that so it was a good eye awakener i guess you could say yeah i had a blast down there though like loved it every place in louisiana i've ever been to was great Except Baton Rouge. Baton, Baton Rouge is a little, yeah, but. <laughs> I think we all have friends that we can think about that are from Louisiana. And honestly, man, every one of them that I'm friends with are really good dudes. Um, like just good people, good eats. They love to eat. They love to cook out. Yep. They love the. the oh, dude, the food's amazing. Yeah. Fishing's amazing. Red beans and rice, fucking all that. Yeah, we did fish down there. The only thing I hate is like coming from Iowa, you can drive like. Like where I'm from, you drive 10 minutes in any direction. You're at like a river or a hunting place. But like living in New Orleans, you got to drive for fucking like an hour. It sucked. But. I know you said this a little earlier, man. You uh, did I hear you right? You said you went you went AWOL from uh, the, the Louisiana National Guard. <laughs> yeah. Please do tell, do tell. Yeah, I'd like to so I'd like to hear I'm your not- your thought process, man. Because obviously you you said you went from there back to Iraq. So what sort of was the spark to to drive that? I would say I think I had like a year left on my contract, maybe maybe even I might have like sixteen months actually. But you know, after Afghanistan, it was like like I don't know, like something changed with the military in like 2012, 2013 time frame where it was just it went from you know adults uh, acting like adults to being like micromanaged to babysitting to fucking. I mean, like the whole the whole like op tempo was changing because you know we were pulling out of Iraq. Uh, the troop drawdown started happening in Afghanistan, and it just seemed like the quality of newer enlisted was sort of shit, and like it would just flow downhill. <clears throat> and at that point, I'd been watching what was going on in Syria at the end of like probably midway through 2013, 
And then like January 2014, February 2014, uh, started seeing the ISIS shit pick up. And, you know, I was like, fuck this, I'm gonna go fight. And then what really did is I had a, so when I was in Iraq, I was 708, we had an interpreter uh, who was actually Kurdish. I actually reached out to him on Facebook and I said, hey, what's up? He's like, hey, uh, you know, we're getting ready for war or whatever. I think at that point, ISIS had just taken, uh, crossed that border from Iraq and Syria, I think like what, February, March time frame yep. of 2014. I was there at the same time, and, man. Uh, I was in Baghdad. Yeah. And uh, this guy was from Dehuk, and he was like, yeah, we're, you know, they're heading this way. And I was like, well, let me see what I can do. And I basically grabbed, I didn't even like call my command or anything. Uh, I basically just fucking used my savings, what I had in there, bought my plane ticket, and just showed up in Herbal. <laughs> this podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. Uh, I literally brought like one bag of clothes. I, I think I had some of my old multi cams from Afghanistan. I didn't bring a plate carrier, didn't bring a helmet. Brought nothing but boots, one set of uniforms, and fucking what I was wearing. Landed in Herbal, met with the former interpreter, and then he was like, you know, uh, come meet my commander. I was like, sweet, let's do this. So I, I like kicked it off. So that's just <laughs> fucking mind blowing to me, bro. Like, that's just so. We have the safety of Apaches and fixed wing and the military <laughs> might of America. And here's this wild man from the Midwest, like, fuck it, guns up, dude. I don't know where the fuck I'm going, really. I'm going to land with a backpack, what I'm carrying, basically, a pilgrimage across the world to a foreign land, foreign culture, different color, different language. And you just show up. I mean, how is... I literally think in a lot of ways it was sort of like redemption too. Cause like I said, I only made it like six months in Iraq the first time I had some PTSD issues and shit. So I think like, I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but like looking back, it was probably more of like, you know, I got to do this. Let's go, let's go get it right this time. So what was their uh, commander's attitude towards you when you showed up? Cause I have to assume that obviously prior to you showing up and there was, there had to be, I mean, there was other people I know when I mean, we saw that stuff on the news, there was other people showing up to fight what was their attitude towards having this American guy show up and say, hey, I want to I help? So I got over there during the early part of it. So there wasn't a lot of other foreign volunteers yet. There was some that were in the, the YPG, obviously. Um, I think Jordan Matson was the first one. I don't know when he – I don't know if he was 2013 or like January. I think he was actually – might have been 2013. But, I mean, there weren't, there weren't many like people – there were many foreigners that were with the Kurdish groups or, you know, talking like I talked with Faza Bedwadi from like the uh, ISAF Iraq Special Operations Forces. Um, I got linked in with those guys, too. And at the time, there really wasn't foreigners. They were more like, what the fuck? Like, you know, why do you want to do this? And, uh, you know, a lot of them, to be honest, like the Kurds, the Kurds really got shafted when we were in Iraq. Um, yep. Like we get we did train them, but we didn't really train them like we trained the Iraqis. You know, I mean, we train like their the Tiger Brigade or Tiger Division, which is like the more special forces side of the KDP, and then we train the PUK side, like their uh, Nineveh, not Nineveh SWAT, but um, uh, what's the PUK SWAT group? Their counter the CTG counterterrorism group, but like we didn't really focus on 
you know, up training the full Kurdish military like their Peshmerga, like we did with the Iraqi army and all that. So, I mean, they were good to have somebody that they, they were appreciative that somebody was willing to come over and train. It was a clusterfuck because barely anyone in Kurdistan that was in the military spoke English. Um, I picked up Kurdish pretty quick, though. Like, Kurdi Dizanam, like, I can speak, uh, well, right now I probably can't speak it too well, but um, when I left Kurdistan, I was pretty close to, uh, you know, I would say working knowledge of the language. But the first few months, it was uh, just utter chaos. I mean, I think at one point they got, what, within 40 miles of Erbil, even. I think they were talking about shutting the airport down at that one time. Like, they got to Makar, so, in Gwer. I wonder really how close you and I were because I was in Slamani and Solomonia at the time and we were prepping to literally on foot if we had to, to leave because they were, it was Erbil first and then it was Dehuk and every one of our sites on the agency were prepping to fucking pop smoke because it was a real deal. And this guy I had in my car, I don't know if you knew this in our small talk offline, but the dude in my car working for who he worked for who I was protecting made a call back to the Pentagon and said, basically, sir, if we don't drop armament tonight, Erbil's lost. And if that happens, Kurdistan's gone. So that night is. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think people realize how close ISIS got to basically overrunning more than what they did in Iraq. Like they were so, and a lot of people don't understand this too. So at the start of the uh, ISIS invasion, the predominant forces that fought was the PKK uh, PKK, PJAC, and then the Iranian Kurdish party, uh, Sesmani Khabat, Kamala, and KDPI, they all sent their fighters out of the Kandil towards Makmur Gwer front, uh, and they sent some down towards the Kirkuk area too. And then you had parties out of Kurdistan that followed like a few months later. But um, those first initial groups that weren't even Iraqi Kurds uh, were the ones that basically blunted the uh, ISIS assault from getting past like the Nineveh Plain area. But I mean, yeah, at one point, um, like when I was over there, there were people trying to flee Herbal further east because like it was close to them getting overthrown. Like, I mean, it was, yeah, it could have been a really bad, like we got lucky. They, they sort of started running out of steam once they hit the Guerra Macmore front. And then that, um, what's that fucking village just west of Kirkuk? Um, not Bashika. Oh, what was that? There was one village that just got stomped in, luckily, by the Kurds. And uh, I think even, like, the Turkmen group that was down there. So I remember the guy was on the phone call, right? I was in the front right of the seat, and he was talking to whomever at the Pentagon. And they're the ones that authorized the two F-18s to come down from Turkey to drop the armament on the 300-vehicle convoy of ISIS pushing into Erbil. And literally said, sir, if we don't fucking do this right now tonight, it's gone. It's lost. And that's when they yeah, came they in. Yeah, they would have lost. And that's when they came in and dropped a fuck. I remember seeing the feed later of the amount of fucking ISIS, ISIL dash fucking vehicles. And it was like circa almost 1991 on the highway of death. I mean, it was fucking bigger yeah. than that. You know, I was safe where I was at, dude, but you were right there in the thick of it, man, with zero support from the Yanks. Yeah, with the fucking. AK and two magazines. Like, everyone bitches like, oh, Ukrainians only give out four megs in an AK. Like, try showing up in Iraq where, like, they're like, here's a AK and, like, 40 rounds. Go get more ammo. You know, like, fuck. Like, when ISIS was first fighting, like, a lot of, like, everyone thinks we gave all this stuff to Iraq, and that means everyone should have it. But in reality, like, the Kurds got shafted. 
from 2000, from the initial invasion, like what, 2003 or whatever, till we left in 2014, we absolutely shafted the Kurds. We didn't give them fuck all for their military. Everything had to go through like the Iraq government, which then, you know, mainly went to the Shias after 2014. Like we shot ourselves in the feet in the foot so many times in Iraq. Um, and, you know, ISIS never would have became a thing if the Shia government in Baghdad wouldn't have fucked off all the Sunni awakening councils. I mean, like, I, so I, I fought in Mosul for a little bit and, you know, I talked with, I actually, to be honest, I even fought with, uh, do you ever remember the Nashkabandi? I remember that used to have a Baptist uh, general that led him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His name. So I actually at one point in time ran into some of those guys. Uh, so at first they fought with ISIS to get Mosul and then ISIS basically started killing them. So then they fought against them, long story short. But uh, at one point we ended up on a front line with a bunch of these militiamen who absolutely hate fucking Westerners, uh, which was interesting. But um, they basically were like, you know, if it wouldn't have been for the Awakening Councils getting canceled or like shut down, you know, ISIS never would have became a thing in, Syria, in uh, Iraq because they would have, the Sunnis would have been policing their own areas like they were. But because the Shia government basically shit canned all those awakening councilmen and they didn't bring them into the fold, uh, much like we fucked up and didn't bring the Iraq military into the fold originally, that's where that insurgency with ISIS picked up. So, like, Mosul could have been avoided. Um, the shit in the Sunni areas could have been avoided if they wouldn't have alienated, you know, 90% of the population, but hindsight's 2020 on that one. Yeah, absolutely, man. So you, uh, how long did you do over there? So I, I think I went home at one point for, no, I went to, where did I go? I, I went to Europe for some, uh, deals, trying to work some stuff with the Iranian Kurds for like two weeks. Otherwise I spent from what, 2014 to the end of 2018 there. So like four years straight, roughly four and a half, five years almost. Wow. It was good though. Like I liked it. I mean, like once you, uh, and like that, that war actually was good. Like, I mean, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned about explosives, obviously I build bombs now, but, um, so like Iraq was good because I got to experience like the trench warfare. Um, obviously they built berms too. They built tunnels. So like it, it was like a prepping for what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you know, we got hit with indirect fire all the time at one point. Um, I was, where was I at the time? I was over at the Bashika front line near, um, uh, Lalish where the Yazidi shrine and everything is. Yep. And, uh, <clears throat> the one area that we were in just prior had gotten hit by like chlorine bombs and other shit. So like, I mean, getting hit with indirect daily, ISIS would literally launch fucking mortars like seven, eight times a day because, you know, there wasn't air support either much then either. Uh, most of the air support was focused on the bigger cities with like the ISOP guys, or the SWAT teams that were pushing, uh, like from the south up to the north, and then you know Telskov Telfar area. So like getting indirect fire, getting shot at by fucking tanks that ISIS had that brought across from Syria. I mean, like it was it was it was intense. It was cool. It was the first time that I've actually gotten in combat where you know your enemy is like five meters, ten meters in front of you uh, when you're clearing buildings. So and then landmines. I mean, they're fucking. They were. ISIS basically built landmines and placed them en masse everywhere they went. So, like, dealing with the shit I dealt there has helped me in Ukraine, like, extremely. So, so what, is your, what was your experience or your perception of the skill level of these guys as a whole of ISIS throughout, you know, throughout the, you know, five years? Do you feel like they, as they sort of uh, got killed off, were they less and less competent or 
you know, what was your feeling on that? Yeah, definitely. So, so when I was there like 2014, 2015, 2016, um, I would say, you know, you could tell that they were getting like by the end of 2015, you could tell like their good fighters were slowly getting degraded. Um, but I mean, like when we were in Bashika in 2016, we were still getting fucking Chechen snipers that were just knocking, uh, you know, uh, Kurdish or Iraqi soldiers daily from like 800 to a thousand meters too. I mean, it wasn't like, wow. it wasn't like the Kurd like, and this is like guys in bunkers that are sandbag bunkers with like a, a little slit like this big, you know, and they're still smacking people in the face. So, I mean, like a lot of people think ice is just a bunch of dudes running around sandals, but a lot of them were extremely well-trained. They came from other parts of the world. I mean, it was, Fuck, I bet ISIS had members from every single country on earth easily. People from former militaries. Um, you know, when we were, um, when one of our units was clearing the Bashika, for instance, you know, the fucking German passports, fucking uh, German military ID, fucking, I mean, it was it's insane. Like, it wasn't just a bunch of jihadists who went to a mosque and fucking decided they wanted to go play army. Like, there was people that literally came from foreign militaries. And they were training them. Um, their bomb making skills were fucking insane. You know, like their V bids weren't your standard. Put amphil, you know, ammonia nitrate fuel in a truck with one detonator and blow it up. You know, they had complex IEDs set up. It was their skill level was insane at the start. Uh, and then once you saw, you know, after they started getting bombed all the time, and there was a counter, like the counterattack started happening. It's, it's, you could, their their troop level, as far as um, their abilities, slowly got degraded. But they, they managed to counter that by just the sheer amount of fucking bombs that they had put in the ground. Like, it was, like, you'd walk into a village and every fucking house would have a booby trap in it. They'd put it in the fucking refrigerators. They'd put it under a carpet. They'd, wherever they could put explosives and put a fucking trip bar in a detonator, they'd do it. It was ridiculous. So, like, a lot of people... Ryan, uh, where were they getting the supplies, the... the uh you know, the, the munitions to, to make this happen. Like how were they making this shit and where was it coming from? So my understanding is the ammonia nitrate came from Turkey, obviously. Um, the detonators, we found detonators in decor that was made fucking in India. I don't know, like 90% of the shit that ISIS had, they were crossing the border from Turkey with smuggling it across, uh, typically through like the Turkey, Syria Avenue, not like Turkey, Iraq. Um, but yeah, like mainly from Turkey. And then, you know, obviously there's illegal arms trades that were happening between the, you know, Syrian government, uh, armies, and then uh, ISIS as well, too. Like oil, like, I mean, ISIS would sell to everyone, and they'd buy from everyone they could, too. But I would say 90% of the shit that we found that was foreign-made probably came through Turkey. Yeah, it's 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 crazy, man. You mentioned the CTG, dude. I was working with those guys and befriended their main guy, their number one guy, their sergeant major, and... I'll never forget. They're pretty legit. They are, man. He spent a few years uh, here in the States. I won't say where, but he, he did a lot of cross-training here. And uh, good human being, man. Spoke perfect English, too. And the dude was like seven foot fucking tall. He was like six five, six six. He's a giant, dude. But I'll never forget, man. I've told Patrick this story being on a flight line. And we were working you know, with some of the – uh, it was like the PUK, I think, that we were helping out with, or the PPK. I can't remember. All the num- the acronyms fucking fall apart over the years. But Yeah, PUK. It was PUK. I got one of the flags. Um, I was on the flight line, man, and I remember hearing so many times they were asking for heavy armor, man, to take out these, these tanks and these fucking 
homemade armor fucking Mad Max vehicles, man. They were actually pretty badass for making it by scratch. And all they wanted was fucking laws. All they wanted was smas. All they wanted was fucking, you know, RPG 7s or 12s, you know. So fucking dudes on a, uh, I'm on an airport mission and I see homeboy and his crew sitting 400 meters to my left at night and the first bird comes in. I think it's ours as it gets closer. I'm like, it's a fucking Russian C-130 variant. I'm like, what the fuck? And it lands Russian flag, dude, which is kind of weird. It was, it was, they weren't even hiding it. And back comes down. And I told my boys, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go say what's up to, to our boy. And he's like, dude, don't. I'm like, watch this. <laughs> so I go over there. And that back rant comes down and I give homeboy a big hug. I'm like, what's up, man? And he wasn't weirded out. He's like, yo, man, I've been trying with you guys for a long time to get what I need to protect my people. And I got to protect my family. I got to protect my country. I'm like, dude, you know me, man. I support it. I'm like, I'm not saying shit. And then there were like some Russian Spetsnaz looking dudes with fucking AK-74 SUs all kitted out. And I was just like, <laughs> and they're like, what's up? I've never really hated an enemy even in Afghanistan or Iraq, but ISIS was different. That was a complete virus to, for your listeners out there that don't know much about ISIS, just Google, Google what they did. Google the videos of what they fucking done to people in torture. They were a fucking virus to humanity, man. Legit. I fucking hated every one of them. Yeah. And like, I mean that, like, I think, and this is a big issue that you see now in Ukraine too. So the U.S. foreign policy, when it comes to, you know, helping struggling democracies defend against whether it's ISIS or a authoritarian or oligarchy, uh, you know, war footing from like Russia or wherever, the problem that we're running into nowadays uh, is that we we're too reactive. We're not proactive and it shows with the Kurds. Like we, we royally fucked the Kurds. And honestly, if we would have listened to their, you know, pleas for help and like January of 2014, it could have saved probably tens of thousands of lives easily because the Kurds are willing to fight. They've, they've never not, you know, they, they could have just sat back and fucking to hook herbal and just, you know, dug a front line there and said, fuck you guys, you know, fuck Iraq, fuck everything. We're just going to hang out here and hold this line. But in, in reality, what they did is, you know, they said, you know what, fuck this. We know what they're, we know what ISIS is, you know, our, the Kurds in Syria are telling us, you know, X, Y, Z. So, you know, they went out and, you know, fucking fought them with whatever they had. You had people grabbing their goddamn grandfather's AK that hasn't been shot in 30 years you know, the last time it was used against was Saddam in what ninety one or yep. eighty what uh, Iran Iraq War, and you know they're fucking going out there with one magazine and twenty rounds that are probably forty years old, and just fucking hoping for the best, you know. And yeah, like I, our our foreign policy when it comes to like using our military to push back against our enemies, you know, I, I, ISIS was definitely an enemy of the U.S. It was you know it's an enemy against everyone. But, like, we're just too reactive sometimes. We need to be proactive. Um, if that means we're warmongers, whatever, fuck them. Yeah, man. What do you, what do you think about the um, – I mean, for this is actually for Jason and Ryan because I'm not I, – I never spent any time there directly engaged with ISIS, and that wasn't – that was never my, my experience. But, you know, ISIS-K is growing in Afghanistan. Um, I don't know. Have either one of you guys – 
tracked on any of that stuff at all. Cause I, I mean, yeah, the Afghanis are, are good fighters, but I mean, Iraq's basically almost been in the same position and, and you know, the freaking uh, they just, these, these guys are coming in and trying to take over fucking Afghanistan. I mean, how do you guys feel about what the potential is there? I, I don't think like ISIS will never probably take a foothold in Afghanistan in a, like a, a majority way. Uh, the biggest problem is the, you know, ISIS got a foothold there because they're, they're basically taking the disenfranchised Taliban or Haqqani or, you know, whatever jihadist group. But at the end of the day, most of the Pashtuns are going to stick with the Taliban. Um, you know, it's, it's an ideology that they've been raised on since the fucking eighties. You know, I mean like the Taliban ideology isn't fucking even like Afghani, you know, the fucking, their, their deal bandism is actually from like fucking revolutionary Islam from like India or some shit. But the, the Pashtuns aren't, you know, they're, they're not that like Wahhabi ish type sect that ISIS is. I mean, ISIS is bad. The Taliban are bad, but like ISIS is batshit crazy, whereas the Taliban are just crazy. But I don't think you'll see them gain a larger foothold unless the Taliban really fuck up. And that's probably why you're seeing the Taliban now, um, you know, making sure their main support base of crazies aren't getting annoyed with them. So they block the schooling for the girls. They're, you know, they're, co- they're retrograding back on some of their more lax standards because if it pisses off their support base, they're going to lose more. You know, they'll go towards ISIS. Yeah. If they see that the Taliban is weakening or softening its stances, the jihadists aren't going to stay there. They're going to go to the what they see as like the next best, which will be ISIS, you know. It seems like ISIS-K is a slightly different animal than what was running around, you know, Syria and Iraq at the time. They don't, they definitely don't seem like they have the ass behind them that, you know, they did in Iraq for sure. No, I don't. I don't think they have the funding anymore. I mean, after ISIS fell apart in Syria and Iraq, their main cash cows broke. You know, um, like a lot of people don't realize. Like, they're like the people probably don't understand that just because ISIS was in Iraq and Syria does not mean the money doesn't go to Afghanistan or everywhere else. Because like a lot of these countries that don't have banking, especially in the Islamic world and like in the Middle East, they have what they call hawala, yep. which basically you don't even need to move money. You give money to a middleman. He makes a phone call, you know, you get a little number on a piece of paper, you go turn it into a person, that person then gives the money in the other country. Like there's no, there's no bank account. It's basically on a honor system of if uh, you give me 10 grand, I give you a number that says 86 on it with blah, blah, blah. You give that to your relative and wherever Micronesia and fucking they'll give you that 10 grand minus whatever that cut is, whether it's 500 bucks or a thousand. Like, and I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like there's money moving all the time that yep. is not tracked. It's not traceable. And it's off of based off of an old honor system. I mean, Hawala has been around since the fucking, we, uh, we rolled up a Hawala courier one time, uh, near fucking spin Boldak on the border. And, uh, this dude had just wads and wads of cash on him. And we're just like, what the hell? And he had a, a little black, uh, satchel with just all these names and numbers in there and just tons of cash. We're like, what the fuck is this? And yeah, that's when I, we, we brought it back. Our Intel guys like, oh yeah, gave us the rundown about Hawala and the whole process for that. I was just like, wow, that's crazy. It's yeah, all just, I mean, like we have cash around the world. Just- 
Yeah, I mean, there's Hawala in the U.S. There's it's in Europe. Like, yep. I mean, when I was in Iraq, if I wanted to move fucking twenty grand, it'd take two phone calls. You know, I mean, it's it's not that hard to do. Um, as a foreigner, if you don't speak the language, you don't, and you're not like in with the local population. It's a lot harder to get happening. But like, I mean, yeah, Hawala, Hawala is, uh, and, you know, it's not just Hawala. There's a lot of other systems you can use. But like, yeah, once ISIS no longer had that oil revenue and whatever else they were doing in Syria with drugs or whatever, you know, the other areas sort of lost all their fucking funding. It uh, doesn't help that, you know, ISIS and then Al Qaeda started fighting with each other. So I think if ISIS wouldn't have went around chopping everyone's fucking heads off and making enemies, they probably would still be around a lot stronger than they are. Um, I don't think it's going to be a problem in Afghanistan. Africa is probably going to be the next biggest one. Yeah. Just because in Africa you have governments that disenfranchise their own people so much, like Mozambique, you have, you know, you have the Mozambique government, then you have Renfro, and then you have, you know, the Islamists who are in like the Northeast or whatever. Like all three sides hate each other. There's no government support. Like it's going to grow in those areas. Now that Wagner's in there too, it's just going to get worse. Yep. Yeah. So when did you, uh, when did you wrap up Afghanistan, man? Oh, you mean Iraq? Uh, so Excuse me, Iraq. Iraq? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was like November, December of 2018. And you 18. went over to, you said you went over to Europe for a while and did you end up, did you end up coming back to the States? Yeah. So actually I went over to Europe in 2016, towards the tail end of 2016. Uh, I was actually trying to help get weapons brought over from a Eastern European country uh with for the kurds it was successful to a certain extent they got ammunition they needed but they weren't able to get the obviously the heavy heavy weapons um predominantly because i think the state department put a stop on that part of it but uh basically i went over with some representatives to just go ease things out and explain like what they were going to do with it a little bit more because like everyone everyone thinks like for some reason like if the kurds get this weapon or that weapon they're always going to like overthrow the iraq government or something but at the time, they weren't even, like, the referendum obviously happened, but at the time, they were more of, like, we need the, the rest of the ammo to fight ISIS because at that point, a majority of the ammunition, like, even AK ammo and stuff, was going through the Iraq government. And, you know, they would say, oh, 100,000 rounds to Erbil, and then, like, 50,000 would show up, and 50,000 would fall off the truck on the way to Erbil. So uh, we tried to go get a, you know, a weapons thing done for the Kurds. Like I said, some of the, they got the small arms ammo and that was about all they got, but the lovely Russians filled in where they could on the rest as well as China. So, so do you ever have any run in with uh, the U S government while you were in Europe or trying to get back to the States? No, I mean, I did back in the States, but it wasn't over like helping the Iraqi Kurds. It was over the Iranian stuff. Uh, I got rolled up. Like when I got back in 2018, I got put on like a fucking selectee list, which if people don't know, that's like quad S security check. So like when you go to airport, you get strip searched, you get fucking bomb swabbed. Uh, I actually got rolled up. I got rolled up in Jordan actually on the way back um, and held for like 48 hours because they said I was a fucking terrorist. But, By the Jordanians? Uh, that was, yeah. Yeah. They basically thought I was on like a fake passport and shit. And I was like, what the fuck? Like it was like my real passport. It was just fucked up from, you know, being on me all the time. But uh, the U.S. Embassy got that cleared up, and then basically when I landed, I just got picked up immediately by the homeland and fucking everyone else under the sun. So how walk us through that? Walk, literally walk us through those minutes. So I, I didn't mean, even I didn't even think about it. Like I was just like, oh, I'm gonna go home, you know. Uh, yeah, you thought you're just like it's not like it's not like you're flying back from fucking Jamaica, man. Like holy shit. 
So like when I was with the Iranian Kurds, basically we were doing cross-border operations into Iran, like uh, <laughs> putting IEDs at Iranian military checkpoints and other fun stuff, uh, hitting IRGC uh, border crossing areas, um, assassinating <laughs> fucking IRGC officers in like Sna, Sanadash, those areas. So like, <clears throat> and this was during the nuke deal. And so like the Americans were not, the American government was a little pissy, put it that way, uh, put it frank. They were not, I pissed in their chariots. But so I got back and basically got fucking put in a room with like four guys from like all different agencies for probably like three, probably five hours, I would say. And it was it was a lot of questions. I also spent like a year in the candle, um, not with the PKK, but like the Iranian uh, Kurdish group. Say that again. A year where? I spent like a year in living in the mountains in the candle. The candle is predominantly where the PKK are. Yep. But also the Iranian Kurds use that mountains to cross the border, too. Um, so yeah, I got hemmed up for, uh, originally they were like, oh, you supported a terrorist group. And it's like, well, no, I wasn't with the PKK. So I had to actually explain to them the difference between the PKK and like Kamala and Kurdistan party, <laughs> Kurdistan democratic party of Iraq or Iran. Yep. And like, I'd explain like the 20 different Kurdish groups. Cause like there's. One, Did these two, guys have like, really any fucking under any understanding of what you were talking about? Yeah, no, I would have like so. no idea. I think, I think literally somebody said, Hey, this is his name. This is what he looks like. Go wrap him up because he was in Iraq for four years. But um, <laughs> everything was good, or at least I thought everything was good. Um, you know, had a lovely interview, uh, gave him a rundown on all the Kurdish groups so they could have some information. And then, like, I tried to fly to my one of my best friends from high school to his wedding and got wrapped up at the fucking airport. Um, I was like, so I went to the airport and my first flight got, I got to show up there and, you know, the little ticket counter, the type your shit in and your ticket prints off, type my name and it says, go up to the front desk. I'm like, oh, my name must've been spelled wrong or something. Go up to the front desk and give her my fucking ID. I'm like, she's like one minute, sorry, I gotta make a phone call. So she makes a phone call and I'm just standing there like, you know, whatever. And then like 10 minutes later, there's like four dudes that show up and they're like, hey, come with us. I'm like, oh, fuck, you know. <laughs> like now, finally, like the light bulb finally went off in my head. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. So this will be fun. Uh, <clears throat> come to find out, I was like put on a select list, which, I mean, to me, that sounds like you volunteer to go on it, but you definitely don't want to be on it. It sort of sucks. Uh, you get like quad S security checks. So they basically like shut down a lane of the fucking, uh, like the security point. You get escorted through it. They strip search you. Like I get bomb swabbed. Like it was a fucking pain in the ass. And then <laughs> come to find out, I was actually like basically like one step away from being on a no fly list. Which I mean, it'd been nice if they sent me a letter. You're, yeah, you're like, like for fucking what? I haven't. It has nothing to do with the airlines or the you're flying. Like what the hell? What a mess. So was this all happening in Dulles in DC? No, so that was actually I went to fly out of Des Moines to my friend's wedding probably like six months after I got back, and that's when that happened. Mm. But uh, I flew back in through New York actually originally, and got hemmed up in New York. It was it was interesting. Missed my flight, and then I had to buy a new one. They wouldn't pay for my ticket. Of that course. sort of pissed me off. But, of course. Oh really? And they take your cell they, they take your cell phone and download everything off of it and everything else, you know. So you're fucked. But I mean it was it was uh I mean like now when I go back I just bring a blank cell phone. Like I'll just go buy a new one in the store, uh usually mail my other one home or mail it to a friend's house, uh just so they don't fuck with me on my cell phone. 
Um, well, actually, that. when I took leave, uh, it doesn't bother me. They know by now. But I took leave in May, actually, and went and bought a old Nokia, like a, what is it, 4580, like the yeah. terrorist bombing ones. Yeah. And just brought that back <laughs> as a joke. Dude, I'm with you, bro. Dude, what you what? need is... Dude, what you need is one of those like kids Fisher Price fucking like flip phone things, and then when they're like, "Where's your phone?" Just pull it out. <laughs> They'll be like, "Shut the, shut up." Well, like I tell, like there's a lot of guys here who've never like done what like I'm I've done before and doing now. So like they're all worried, like, "Oh, Homeland Security, what do I tell them?" Like they're gonna go through my phone. I'm just like, dude, just mail your phone back. Put your sister's name as your, you know, the person mailing it. Send it to your friend or whatever. And I was like, go out and buy like a Redmi, like a cheap Chinese smartphone. Draw a smiley face on your balls and just take a bunch of photos of it. And when you get to the airport, everything will go great. <laughs> I like it, man. So There's probably some pissed off TSA agent right now or Homeland Security agent because he's probably seeing fucking 40 guys' balls by now. <laughs> yeah, they're all missing flights. So you wrap up Iraq with a bang. <laughs> uh <laughs> When does, like, walk us through that time frame of, like, okay, I'm done with Iraq. You're either back in the States or wherever you're at, and then then there's Russia. Or, yes. Like, where? So, I, so, actually, so I got back in 2018, and I reached out to some of the guys that were in Ukraine currently, because uh, there's been foreign volunteers in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, in 2014, there was a bunch of right-wing fuckheads over here. Um, they lasted, like, three, four months, then they got sent home because Ukrainians thought they were idiots. Um, and then like 2015, 16, 17, 18, there was actually decent ones that came over here like Sean Pinner, um, Aiden Aislin, um, God, there was like seven or eight guys who actually like made a career out of it over here. But in 2018, I reached out to some of them and I was like, Hey, you know, is the Ukrainian military still recruiting? And basically they were like, yeah, we'll give you the details. And so like I got home. I think it was like 2019, probably like February. They're like, okay, uh, they're not taking foreigners anymore currently. Uh, they're redoing the uh, like enlistment process for the foreigners. So I was like, oh, well, fuck, I'm not going to wait. I'll just chill here. Uh, I ended up opening up a company doing like agricultural uh, construction and like cleaning out hog barns and like cattle lots and stuff with pressure washers. And basically just built a company there for a while. Uh, I had opened a weapons development company. We built a modular hand grenade that we were working on getting through the U.S. SOCOM uh, hard problems initiative and a few other avenues. Um, we were successful a little bit on it. Actually, like 2021, we got some feedback and stuff, but that was like late 2021. Um, everything is currently on hold. I might build them here in Ukraine. We'll see. But, um, but basically... What's the deal with the, the hand grenade? What is it? What's different about it? Uh, basically, so the US, a lot of people think a hand grenade is just a hand grenade, but it's not. You have like, so for offense, you don't want to use fragmentation because fragmentation is 360. It goes everywhere. So you want something that's more pressure. So basically ours had a snap lock so you could switch the sleeve from uh, like more explosive to then having a fragmented shell. Um, cause like the U S is hand grenade. The M 67 was developed like 71 or 60, 68 to 71, I think. And it's not that great of a hand grenade. If you actually look at it, uh, it doesn't pre like it's pre fragmented. Um, 
which means like basically it's like pre-scored so it's supposed to break up evenly but it actually doesn't break up that well so we actually did like interlocking sleeves so like it's pre-fragmented but it's to the point where it's loose but it's not like jingling so it had like ours had a higher dispersion rate like 40 percent higher dispersion rate actually um and it took maybe like four seconds to switch from a fragmentation sleeve to adding you know 200 grams of explosives which you know it would have been the initial charge plus a detonator we had I think it was like 98 grams of explosives in it. So you're looking at 300 grams of explosives, which is more than enough to either kill you or concuss you in like a 12 by 12 room. Um, So we had that developed. We also built a modular claymore. So uh, basically like light to medium skin vehicles, it basically shot, uh, you could swap the front plate and then it would be like an EFP or it could be fragmentation. So uh, we're just working on the more modular designs. which was good. Uh, I used a lot of that experience to build like some drone drop munitions here, but I did that from like 2018. I basically just built businesses, uh, ran it off that got involved in politics in 2020, uh, 2021 timeframe. Then I was, was it 2022? Let's see. No, probably mid 2021. I actually decided I was going to run for Congress for the North. It'd be the fourth district, Iowa. I got like 8,600 signatures, and I think I needed 10,000 uh, for the 2022 election. And that obviously, uh, I didn't fall through with that because I ended up in Ukraine, obviously. I don't know. <laughs> like, I probably, I probably could have actually got the signatures and ran while I was fighting over here because I don't think that's that's probably something that's never happened before. But, um, yeah, I just I backed out. Wow. You probably would have won, won that. Uh, honestly, like... The fourth district has been represented by idiots for a while. Like we have Steve King, who's basically a closet racist, uh, and then his replacement, uh, Feenstra, is not exactly the most representative person of Iowa, I would say. But so when you were when you were home in between the Iraq deployment and and heading to Ukraine, and you're doing these jobs and stuff, and obviously this would come up in conversation. I mean, I'm especially if you're you're back living where you kind of grew up, it's a small town, everybody knows. Like what kind of what kind of reaction were you getting from people? Were they just like, hey, Captain Insano, you're back? No, I mean like most people was like they wanted to know what it was like. Uh nobody thought it was bad. Nobody really was like overly questioning what you know why I did it or anything. There was like you're fucking crazy. See, that's the thing is like, like, it's, it's such a rural area too. I would think, like I said about you running, (laughs) you, you, it's probably a lot of very conservative people. You know, you probably actually would have won that if you could have got the signatures. And even though you're still gone, you probably would have won that goddamn race. Yeah. I I collected those signatures in like three months. I mean, I could have easily got enough signatures to either get on the ballot as a Republican or a Democrat. I was actually, so originally I was going to run independent. Because, like, I'm more of, like, a centrist. Yep. Like, I'm conservative, but, like, I also believe the government needs to be, um, you know, more social services to a certain extent. But uh, I ended up going with the Democrats, but, like, I was, I would say I was more of, like, a blue dog Democrat. So, like, the Tom Harkin era of Iowa, like, conservative when it comes to, like, finances and all that. Yep. And then more open to, 
you know, increasing welfare to a certain extent under this or that, and then, you know, medical and all that stuff. So it was a little weird. Um, cause like people are like, well, you're conservative. Cause I'm, I'm huge pro pro second amendment. And like, I'd show up to these Democrat, uh, town halls and they'd be like, Oh, what is your idea on, what is your idea on weapons? I'm like more of them, you know, fucking <laughs> go buy a weapon, go buy one. Obviously, you know, buy one and get training, you know, go practice with it. It's a tool. If you're not good with your tools, it's not worth having. There you and go. So it brought up a lot of interesting conversations. Um, you know, I would open carry or not open carry, but I'd have my concealed carry too. So I always carried a pistol with me to them if I was allowed to have it in the building. So, um, but yeah, it was a lot of people were like, what in the fuck? But I mean, nobody was against it. They weren't like, Oh, I'm not going to vote for you. It was more of like, you know, just, I guess something that they haven't had because Iowa used to be a purple state. So we had Democrats, Republicans, and it worked out great. And then the Democrats started doing this, uh, you know, towing the national line instead of towing an Iowa line when it came to like, you know, what's best for Iowa versus, and they do this. This is where the Democrats fuck up all the time. They do this in the rural areas where they just try to push this, uh, big city politics and nobody fucking cares. Like nobody, like, if you go to a rural town in Iowa and you say, you know, we're going to do uh, a gun ban and we're going to lock in this, you know, fucking environmentally friendly bullshit, like nobody's going to listen to you. Because like rural town Iowa, 90% of them own guns. They don't give a fuck about you wanting to ban guns. They're actually against it. And like the Democrats fuck up consistently and what that they don't understand rural America. And on the same foot, the Republicans fuck up because they understand rural America to an extent, but they fuck up when it comes to the metropolitans and like the urban built up areas. So, but it was interesting. It was a good experience. I think like, I like politics. I just don't like how extreme it is now in the U S it's like, you know, a horseshoe and both sides are completely fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed, Amen. man. I mean, that's, that's, it's something that Jason and I, we've talked about this quite a bit. We don't, we don't delve into the subject in our, podcasts or, or YouTube channel. We just don't talk about this stuff because it is so divisive and yeah, like there's such a hard line now in America, up. you know? Yeah. There's no debate anymore. It's either I'm right and you're fucking wrong deal with it. It's like, well, where's the discussion? Like yep. you should be able to go to a town hall with a politician and sit down with them and have a fucking discussion where instead nowadays you go to a town hall, whether it's Republican or Democrat, and somebody asks them a question, if they don't like the answer, instead of fucking saying, you know, well, I believe this, they just fucking scream at them. And, like, the like Ukrainians ask me all the time, here, like, what is wrong with your political system? Like, they love democracy, but they're just like, you know, all they see on TV is, like, the far left or far right pushing weird shit that even the Ukrainians are like, what in the fuck is this, you know? So like, I don't know. I think we need in America, we need to get back to more of an understanding of like, just because this isn't your political ideology doesn't mean you have to fucking shout, you know, talk it out. It's just, you know, just because you don't like their fucking viewpoint doesn't mean they're not, you know, there's, they're still technically your neighbor. Americans an American. Yeah, absolutely, man. So you're, you know, kind of letting that slide a little bit. Your focus obviously now is, is is where you're at um how like walk us through that fucking flight from you know america to, to ukraine I, I basically 
So I basically pulled, so actually before I was coming to Ukraine, um, I actually spoke with, uh, going back to Afghanistan, uh, do you guys know who Sammy Sadat is? No. One of the Afghan commandos. So he was the, he was the last general of the Afghan commandos before Afghanistan fell. I was actually, had a flight booked and everything and was supposed to fly out the day Kabul fell. Uh, so that was uh, low point in 2021 because I missed it by like two days to go help out a little bit. But hindsight's good because probably got killed. But yep, yep. <laughs> but I basically pulled the same thing I did in Iraq. I got, I mean, I planned it a little bit better. Like I told my family this time, like, hey, I'm going to Ukraine. I'm going to go fight. Uh, this was in February. And basically, this was right after the uh, Russians went in. Nope. Right before. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, because, like, they were massive on the border. It was going to happen. There was, like, I mean, the U.S. is like, oh, they're not going to invade. But I think, honestly, the U.S. knew, like, probably in fucking end of December, January is going to happen. You don't put 40,000 troops on your border and your neighbor's border to then fucking not go in. They already invested too much. But I flew into uh, Bucharest with just a backpack. I had Dickies jeans, uh, like, two pairs of those. Like the, the little cargo jeans, uh, work pants, uh, two t-shirts and a sweatshirt. And that's what I flew into Bucharest for. Uh, I had a contact that I had met in Kurdistan, actually, uh, a Polish friend of mine who was doing some uh, work in Romania. And he picked me up in Bucharest. We drove up to the very far northeast border crossing of Romania and uh, Ukraine. And basically, I got to the border. He dropped me off, and he said, hey, good luck. I'll see you in six months or whatever when I go back to Ukraine. Because he was doing work in Ukraine. Uh, he was part of the OSCE, the monitoring group. I got to the border, and the Ukrainians like, what the fuck are you doing on this border? Because, I mean, they don't see a lot of Americans wander, walking up to a border crossing on the Romania side. So I was like, oh, well, I'm here because I'm going to fight in the war that's coming. And they're like, what in the fuck are you talking about? And uh, basically, from there... Like, it, like, I got brought into their little, um, like, border. Like, you cross the border, there's a fence, and then you have, like, another fence, and then there's a building that you go to. <clears throat> so they brought me to the building, gave me some coffee, and, like, all right, you got to hold on. Like, using Google Translate, because nobody at that crossing spoke English. So got out the Google Translate and was like, yeah, I'm here because, you know, I'm going to join your military. <clears throat> and they're just like, what in the fuck is going on? So they made phone calls and, like, Probably an hour later, uh, one of the female border guards was like, all right, I'm going to give you a ride to the bus station. You can go to Kiev. And or, where did that? Yeah, it was. No, they sent me to Lviv. <clears throat> so I got on that, took the train to Lviv, and then I ended up hopping a train from Lviv to Kiev. And Lviv and is uh, on the on the western side. West. They're a little bit closer to Poland, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. So I ended up in fucking Kiev and was bumming around for like two or three days. <laughs> and <clears throat> this was, <clears throat> I think, the 23rd or 24th. Uh, anyways, fucking dipshits across the border, uh, invade Ukraine. And at that point, it was basically you go to like this, the, the fucking, uh, they were handing out weapons at certain areas in the city if you wanted to defend. So you show up, show up, passport, all that good stuff. They're like, what in the fuck? They're like, whatever, here's your weapon, wrote down my passport number, whatever. Uh, which, I don't have that weapon anymore, and I never re-signed it back in. Uh, so I'm probably going to get fucked at some point on that. Hopefully so did you, did you like, go to, I mean, I don't know if they have recruiting centers there or whatever. Did you, when you got to Kiev, did you try to, like, 
locate a military recruitment center and talk to those guys? No, not, not right away. I just went and fucking went to their little the little locations where they were handing out the weapons to the civilians that wanted to defend themselves. And basically hopped in with a bunch of dudes and rolled up to the fucking north, it was by the west side of Hostomel uh, for like three, four days, uh, just getting shot at left and right by everything under the sun. Um, and then basically that was when, I think it was like the 26th or 27th, uh, Zelensky did that thing where, hey, if you want to join, come and, you know, come across the border, we'll set you up with a unit, blah, 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 International Legion bullshit. And at that point, the guys were like, okay, you have to go to the new location. So they brought me to the nearest train station. I hopped on a fucking train again, uh, headed west back to Lviv. Once I got to Lviv, I hopped off the train station, and there's fucking cops everywhere now, and, like, the, you know, all the military. <clears throat> so I uh, grabbed a Ukrainian guy, one of the police. I was like, okay, Google Translate, military commissariat, where is it? So ended up in a military commissar out in Lviv. The guys there are still like, what the fuck? You know, foreigners are coming over. I think originally they thought like maybe 10 or 20 or whatever would come over. I don't think they were expecting like thousands. But anyway, the, I ended up in the military commissar out. They did like a brief overview, checked my passport to make sure it had a visa on it. They were like, oh, Romania, what the fuck? That was an interesting one. They are like, oh, you didn't cross from Poland. I was like, no. Um <clears throat> <laughs> then they put us on a bus. It was myself and I think like five others. And we got to the training base, Yavariv, uh, which ended up getting bombed like two days after we left there. Thank God I wasn't there for that shit show. So we got to Yavariv. Um, <clears throat> when we were at Yavariv, they just were like, okay. They, they actually had it set up pretty decent to start for the amount of people that were about to come in. But uh, So when I got there, there was a dude in a tent who was like, okay, come here. I'm military intelligence. We're going to run a background check on you quick. So, like, ask your full name. Show them your passport. I think they basically just Googled you or Facebooked you and checked your social media. Uh, they'd take a photo. I mean, because, like, they don't, at that point in time, they didn't have time to, like, be like, okay, let me call Interpol, you know. Um, and did you uh, give them any information about your time in – uh, Iraq, or did they kind of figure yeah, it out yeah. themselves? So like they, they Googled, they Googled me, and my name popped up, uh, helping the Iranian Kurds. The guy was like, "Oh, that's good, you know, fucking up Iran." I was like, "Yeah, cool." Um, <laughs> and then I brought my DD two fourteen and stuff with me too. So, um, like, I brought my documents showing who I was because, like, I was in Iraq, and there was a fuck ton of foreigners that'd show up. They're like, "Oh, I'm sniper," and it's like, "Well, you know." <clears throat> I was like, well, you really aren't because you can't prove it. So, like, I brought my DD-214 and then basically, like, all my Iraqi certifications and, Smart. like, my Iraqi military. Because, like, I had an Iraqi military ID and I had a Kurdish military ID. So I brought copies of those, um, gave them all that, gave them my Iraqi documentation, which is in Arabic, so they couldn't fucking read it anyway. But they're sitting there with their fucking phone, Google translating it. Um, <clears throat> and then they're basically like, all right, you need to go to this building. So I went to that building. <clears throat> Met up with 12 other people. There was like uh, a Navy SEAL there, a Korean SEAL, uh, some rain, former Rangers. Um, I mean, it was, it was basically all mainly Special Forces guys. So it was pretty cool. They're like, well, what was your background? I was like, oh, I was fucking 11 Bravo. <laughs> They're like, well, why are you with us? I'm like, just Google me. It's fine. Thanks for listening and check back next week for part two with Ryan O'Leary and the guys from Savage Actual. 
This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.